Welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast, where we discuss all things real estate, personal finance, investing, entrepreneurship, and the many ways to achieve financial independence. We interview accomplished investors and entrepreneurs with the goal that their stories inspire you to take control of your financial future. Here to get your creative juices flowing while also documenting their own personal investing journeys are your hosts, Corey Jacobson and Ryan Bevilacqua. Juice, as always, it's your boys, Ryan and Corey here with another episode. We had a fun one today. Actually interviewed a gentleman named Justin Freistadt. He was in the food business with his father. He had a company. Um, essentially what they did was they would prepackage meals and, and specific cuts, whether it was like chicken, steak, et cetera. Um, and they would send it out to people. And it was really that they niched out on the, I would say like bodybuilding, like healthy workout um, kind of fit subscription model. Well, yes. So basically what, during COVID, essentially people that didn't want to leave the house, their business took off because they were just shipping out, as Corey mentioned, like like certain subscription-based model, but certain amounts of food and people just get to their house. They would send them little like meal prep kits and like examples on how to cook certain meals. And I think he said he 3X'd his business over COVID and he and his father ended up selling the business and transitioned into now he works for a hedge fund um, and is just kind of managing and uh, sourcing private capital. Yeah, he's a manager of a hedge fund, but he also, you know, Side note: Has over sixteen hundred units. He's an LP in uh in over sixteen hundred unit uh in five states in different real estate syndications. So this is really a masterclass on like what a hedge fund is, how it works, how you can take your money for accredited investors only, right? But how you can take your money and multiply it, right? Not using mutual funds, ETFs, stocks, four hundred one ks. That stuff is like basically saying. They're packaged products that are made by all these banks to keep people in this in this range, right? In this middle class range. Uh, some of these hedge funds that Justin was referring to, including a lot of the ones that he's involved in, have pay out two to four percent per month. Like these things are like high, high end, but even just by being in the credit, which is not like crazy to get there at this stage, you know, a million dollars in net worth. Um, or making over $250,000 a year or 300 combined. Sorry, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but he had my head spinning throughout the show because he talks about all the ins and outs of like what a hedge fund is and how it works and how his company raises money. Dude's a stud. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think it's just showing a different world. Like uh, I'm trying to think of a way to, to correlate this, but we talk a lot, Corey mentioned like the 401ks, Roth IRAs, like all the things that are pushed by institutions, right? And you see out there for that at 97% of America. This is like the other 3%. Really, it's like the other 1%. Like, what is everybody else doing with their money, the big dogs? And it was cool for him to teach us how it's done, right? We're familiar with syndications. And instead of buying real estate, he talks about the hedge fund side of things where they're buying businesses and they're investing in other things. So um, he, we wove in a little bit of real estate in the episode, but it's really a business masterclass and, and hedge fund one-on-one. So um, I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this one. Yeah, we had a blast with Justin today. Let's bring him in. Let's do it. For real estate investors, going mobile is the next big thing for managing our properties. We like to have the power and resources in the palm of our hand. When we're hunting for deals, we're consistently go, go, go. Having RentReady's property management app is great for checking in on all our properties, especially when it's time to collect rent. With RentReady, we get the benefit of both mobile and web apps that allow us to collect rent from anywhere. We not only get instant notifications when rent is paid, but we also have the ability to send automatic reminders to tenants when rent is due or late. 
From finding the perfect tenant to collecting rent, everything an investor needs to build wealth and manage their investing portfolio can now be found under one roof with RentReady. The most exciting news is that RentReady gave us an exclusive 50% off promo code that can now be used by all of our Weekly Juice listeners. You just need to visit RentReady.com and enter the code JUICEBOT to get 50% off any RentReady plan. That is R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com and enter the code JUICEBOT, J-U-I-C-E-P-O-D, to receive 50% off any RentReady plan. Well, Justin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, Ryan and I are excited to have you on here. We've been uh, kind of going back and forth via Instagram, but uh, I was just looking at all of your content. There's so much to talk about. I think first what we want to do is just talk about your entrepreneurial journey and, and the food business, which is where you kind of made your way. But uh, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about everything we got going on and how we got here. So maybe if you could just give us, take us back, you know, take us uh, back to maybe the beginning of your business ventures and just give us your story and tell us how specifically you got into the the food industry. Yeah, I had the unique experience of growing up in a household that had a lot of ups and downs. So, um, you know, I watched my dad make millions and millions of dollars in a company and sell it and then lose it all. And I got to see both sides of the coin of, what was possible, right? Like how, how big you can go, which I think is instrumental in knowing what your ceiling is, right? So when you see that as, as a young man, uh, I mean, I was 12 years old when that happened and, you know, I saw what was possible, but I also saw the destruction of, of losing it. So it, it kind of framed me in a way of when I build, it's going to be a little different because the, the thing I see with all these entrepreneurs, the people who are so incredible at building businesses is that turning that income into wealth and preserving it is a completely different skill set. And that's why we all know entrepreneurs that have lost a lot of money. Like my dad's an incredible entrepreneur and he's had to learn the hard way a few times, um, you know, how to protect that wealth. So uh, when I was in high school, I was playing hockey. I mean, I, I was terrible as a student, like a two GPA, could barely get into college. I only got into college because of hockey. And I just there was nothing there for me. So my dad was starting a, a little food service. He he bought it uh, from a company that was going out of business for just a couple hundred grand. And um, I decided to drop out of college and dive into the sales side of the business. And um, so the first thing I did was master the sales part of it and then started building out teams and, and scaling that side of the business. So you fast forward 10 years, you know, food's a very, very difficult business. You've got massive utility bills. You got walk-in freezers, 30 employees, trucks on the road and, and thin margins. So we, you know, we got up to doing 10 million in sales and, and, and it, it's not like you're getting really rich off of that because it, it's just not all businesses are great businesses. And that, that whole time, you know, I thought I was like, man, I just can't figure this out. We're working so hard. Our marketing isn't working. We need to spend more, but then there's no ROI. And it was very, very difficult to make the whole thing work. And then a pandemic happens. And all of a sudden, the whole world is in the market for food delivery. So we just exploded. We were able to completely cut off the marketing engine. And what I realized through that process was sometimes you're in the wrong vehicle and it's not going to work no matter how good you are at business. So we decided to sell it to a private equity firm um, and, and then we moved on to the next thing. That's Okay, that's really interesting. There's actually some similarities between you and, and me in the sense that I went, I'm went. i still involved in my family's business. We do um, signage. So we make signage for like hospitals, education institutions, and it's uh, a great business, but very difficult as well. And I, uh, my, my father and my uncle have been doing it for 
six, uh, well, it was a 60 year old company. They've been doing it for 45. So the ebbs and flows and just to be in business that long and how much things change. I mean, what have you seen has been the biggest change over the past 15 years for you and the business? And uh, what do you think? I guess you're kind of attributing it to COVID was, is it the growth, right? Like, is that really what made it take off? Without COVID, we would have never been able to sell this company. And, and I, you know, it was an external factor. It had nothing to do with us. And for, you know, for some people, COVID ruined your business. And for us, it, it sent us to the moon. But being able to understand and being real with yourself, you know, like in that moment, I realized, oh, our marketing never worked because nobody wakes up in the morning and is in the market to buy a freezer full of food. <laughs> they just, they go to the grocery store, you know? And then when, and in 2015, when, when Facebook ads were working, you know, we were making the business work, we were growing, but you know, every marketing thing just seemed to die. And then we couldn't figure out how we were going to generate the leads. So I, I would just say, if you have a lead generation problem, you might have a business that's not going to work. Interesting. So I want to talk about what it's been like to work. I, correct me if I'm wrong. You, well, you said this, you went right out of, um, or the last 15 years you've been doing this, right? Yeah. What has it been like working in the family dynamic for as long as you have? And then, you know, for that 15 year time frame, because I've been doing it for five years, I have the pleasure of working with my uncle and my father, but I, I just want to hear from somebody else who might be in that position in the family business, the highs, the lows, and what, what's that been like, especially for, you know, a decade and a half? Yeah, it's such a double-edged sword, right? It's like, yeah. you know, when times are bad, you're going through things. It's just like, why am I doing this, you know? Uh, but at the same time, to be able to to build a business and, you know, provide for our entire family um, together is is something that it's just, it's hard to explain. So to be able to to build that business with my dad and then sell it to a private equity, I mean, that's some that's a bond we're going to have that we did that forever. Um, now, going through it, arguments, the fights, the disagreement and philosophies on how we should do things. I mean, at times it was like, I, did, I didn't want to do it anymore, right? So I think it just... It just shows that there is no rosy lens. Like you're, it's going to be difficult, and you know, going into business with your family is it's tough, but there's also rewards with it too. So, um, you know, we're we're moving on now to other things, and it's kind of cool to like be like, okay, now my dad's my dad, not necessarily my business partner. You know, it's a different vibe. So that's that's very cool. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, it's. I, I can only imagine that dynamic. It allows for some time freedom and flexibility, right? I wouldn't say time freedom, but you're not punching in a nine to five, right? And you can riff with a family member. So it's kind of cool. It's a different, different thing. My my brother and dad work together. They have a construction company, and I never was in the business. But hearing his, uh, hearing Corey's stories from his family dynamic, and then mirroring that with my brother and dad, like I just know it's a different beast. And every time you're together, you're talking whether you want to or not. You're always talking about business a little bit. I'll see them off to the side. And I'm like, dudes, can I jump in here? But it's always about like what's going on next. There's never a break, right? But um, I wanted to talk about the marketing a little bit because we're with our businesses, we're kind of going through ebbs and flows and trying to make a funnel system. And then you, what there's Facebook ads. There's a lot of different things. There's SEO. Can you talk to what worked for you guys? I know it's probably specifically to your niche. Um, and then also take us through the sell the sale of the company. You don't have to give exact numbers, but just through the process, like. Candidly, uh, my uncle has sold a couple companies and I he's walked me through the process, but it's every, I think it's kind of different between the type, the lines of work everybody's in. So we'll start with marketing, then we'll go through the sale of the company. Yeah. I mean, I think every business is different. You know, we had periods of time where traditional marketing would work or 
the Facebook ads, things like that, but it was never sustainable. The thing that worked the best for us was referral programs and intimate partnerships. So, you know, we were selling organic food, healthy food. So what worked the best was boots on the ground networking. Like I would go to all the CrossFit gyms and knock on the doors. Um, typically you go in there, the owner is the trainer. Like you're going to get to talk to the guy who can make the decision. And we would just set up agreements with them that every um, client that would come out of their gym, they would get compensated. And then we would set up booths on the weekend at a CrossFit gym when they're doing the Murph or whatever. And uh, we'd cook samples and, and we would, you know, sign up a lot of clients that way. That was the cheapest way for us to generate revenue of anything. Um, so, but it was a lot of boots on the ground work, right? So, and then we had a referral program where, you know, if you, if you refer a certain amount of clients, you would get your next order for free. And we, we put so much emphasis on amazing customer service and wowing the customer base that we, we, we basically survived off referrals when the other marketing wouldn't work. Were you guys a subscription-based model? Like, uh, I guess for the listeners that don't know, can you walk us through just the ins and outs of the company real quick? Yeah, so we would sell six months at a time and it was all farm-specific, cut to spec, mostly meats, that, that was the focus. Like really high-quality Angus beef from Creekstone Farms, Murray's Chicken. If somebody wanted to get six-ounce chicken breast, eight-ounce chicken breast, we would cut it that way. So you could order a very specific quality and kind of food, which worked really well with the the gym owners, right? They could give their their client the the meal plan and then I could ship them exactly the the macro servings they needed, right? So it was a good, good relationship there. Um, what was the rest of that question? No, that's actually good. I was going to ask you who your like ideal customer was or your avatar, right? But I'm thinking at how perfect it is. I'm, I could tell you work out, but like these, it's funny to go into gyms and there's certain people that go a type of way. 97, I think, what's it? 97% diet and then 3% gym when people talk about getting in shape. So that's perfect for you. And I was, I was just thinking you mentioned COVID and everything like sped up everything for you guys. People at home, I figured it was a subscription-based model where you're sending it right to their door and they're saying, hey, I need XYZ. I'm not going to the store to buy it. I want it delivered to my front door. Then they can cook it up. Do you got, did you guys provide, I just said meal plans, but like examples on how to cook certain meals or like to just give people kind of that creativity where it's not just like, here's a slab of meat? Yeah. So real quick, really important point about what you said though. I will never be in a business ever again that doesn't have recurring revenue, Right. Like if you can only sell your product to somebody once, that means you're starving the next day, right? So that was the good thing about our model is we would sell six months of food. They would put it on a monthly payment plan. So we had a finance company. We made money off the financing. So now you're you're vertically integrating or horizontally integrating, whichever. And then uh, six months goes by and you call them, hey, you ready for another order? So in times where new business was difficult, we always had the reorder base to keep the company going. So that it's it's a level of stress that comes off of you. Of course, you always need new business, but if you have enough recurring revenue to keep the lights on in bad times, you know you're not you're not a slave to the next sale. It's your foundation. Yeah, we do that in my line of work. Just it's our renewal campaign, right? You go through it at one point in the year and just bring everybody back as as much as you can, and then it's new business. It just goes in cycles. But um, that's interesting. I'm I'm curious. Maybe you could. I don't know if this is going to be off the top question, but. In the real estate business, how would you view a recurring customer? And my, this is my take. Let's just say, for example, you're um, like a GP on a deal uh, in a syndication. Is when you go through the refinance process, right, of the sale of the property, and, and the the investors come, they get a chunk of change. If you did things right, they'll hopefully reinvest that money again with you, and then it keeps going. 
that's just one example, but I think- Or just like tenants in general. Tenants are recurring revenue. That's why the real estate business, I feel like, is a, sure. a great one because you have either, from a short-term perspective, you have tenant, uh, you have guests that want to consistently come back. They're referring people. You have that flow. Uh, and then monthly tenants just- If you get them to sign back up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, the question- the question was really for you, but I thought I actually yeah, had a note there. I guess I'll just explain it. And then a new sale too. I guess it's it's referral based based on you again. I'm just thinking like a real estate agent sells me a property. Then I have a great experience. Refer Corey. He has great experience with his family. It's like the spider web, right? So that's your referral based thing too. Then also the subscriptions. I think it's great. And it's important to talk about because I think there's a lot of people out there that are just trying to pump the new business, right? And they don't think about that recurring revenue. So yeah, it's a good point. I want to get into, yeah. to go ahead. Yeah, and I was just going to say on referrals, like a lot of people, same thing with sales. You know, they're like, I need to get better at asking for referrals. I need to get better at closing sales. I need better sales skills, like all this stuff. The reality is if you're amazing at what you do, you don't have to close and you're going to get referred. So I would put it back on just for everyone listening. If you're in sales or you're in, in in a business and you're not getting referred, Look inward at how you serve your customers and how you handle them every step of the process because it is so easy to lose someone. Like you can't do anything wrong in the entire process. The attention span, especially, I would say, Justin, is like that's the thing that that like because everything now is so review based and visual, like uh, it's all out there. Like if you look at a Google review and it's not 4.8 or 4.7, you're like, What's wrong with this? And if you see one negative, it stands out so much more than all the positive ones. And we're noticed that in our Airbnb business, it's like, if you have a negative review and maybe this was one out of 37 people that have been there that just, who knows, they're having a bad day, but like mitigating that, yeah, you're so right. It's, it's very easy to lose people. And I think that having the product that works is well, that works and serves as well is more important than like the skill set of the salesperson. I, would you agree? I, I think response time is by far the most important element. Like all of my clients know they're, if they text me or call me, like something's wrong if they don't hear from me in, within 30 minutes, right? Yeah, uh, to your point, we're going through a little bit of, well, we've, we have our hands in a lot of different things. And, and it's, it's funny because we, we refer business out to certain, to certain um, different verticals. And for us, we're very fast on the response time. And when we, as like an affiliate, if we refer someone else to another company and they don't reply in the time that we typically would reply, it's a kind of a bad look on us. And it sucks because that's just not how we operate. So it's like working layers and layers deep with that. But um, to to Corey's point with the hospitality business, that was our number one thing. We're like, listen, if we're coming into this, we'll help you with the marketing. And, and that was where, like our the aspect that we thought we could bring the most value. But that was also on the customer service side. We're like, listen, how can we get these response times that to a guest like almost immediately? And there's a team of VAs. Uh, shout out to our business partner. He he built a team of VAs that literally work around the clock. So when one picks up, when one goes to bed, the other one picks back up. So it's an average of three minutes for each guest on response time. And the reviews, this has been the last six months. They've gone up catastrophically. It's been insane. And even if even if it's not the most perfectly worded thing, the fact that you're on the ball is is amazing so uh, yeah nothing shows i care more than response time i agree with that i totally agree with that and and i want to talk to uh your your thought on sales right and you know you don't have to be an amazing seller what are your thoughts on um like a customer service team like did you guys can you maybe talk us through did you guys have a customer service team and i think that goes to response time right but like how was that built out how many people and like 
did you go through specific on, like training with them on here's here's exactly how we would reply and, and just how does that work? Yeah, I think I think this whole thing starts off with the ecosystem of your CRM, right? Somebody's got to be the brains behind the cadence of every interaction that your customer is going to have throughout every part of the process, throughout every department in your company. And that's got to be designed and woven out so that somebody can just get into the CRM and work the task list and, and it's all spelled out. So they don't have to be incredibly skilled to do it and then automate as much of it as possible, right? Like I, I had, I don't know, thousands of customers. Like I'm not going to be able to treat them all like my best friend, but my CRM can. Yes, I agree. We do um, we do something where it's every 30 days, you got a touch point. And then, I mean, this is for one of our businesses. We're working out like, hey, what's the, for example, for one of, one one thing that I'm involved, involved in, we do Salesforce, right? And it's every 30 days, you're, you're, you have a touch point, which is great. Then there's also HubSpot that's out there. There's a bunch of different ones that you can work on. But to your point, it's, oh, I'm still thinking about you. And they're just like, the customer feels like you're just checking in and you thought about them. But it, the best part is it's, automated for you, right? Like on your calendar, it flicks off. This is if you're running the show, right? Not maybe the top dog, but you're in the weeds. You're like, ding, you got to call John Smith today at 9am. And you call, leave a voicemail or you drop him an email. And people think they're thinking about them. It's funny. It's it's actually just a, a maybe a non-organic way to build a relationship because it's a task list, but you feel like that relationship is built over time because, or at least they do, because they're receiving the phone call from you. You're like, wow, this guy thinks about me a lot. This is great. So I just example, I work in customer service. So there's a lot of different things that we do to try to like stay top of mind and then certain ways to reply. Like I have to coach people on, Hey, don't sound like a robot. You have to make this sound like it's you who's replying and put your, your personality through the screen, which is hard to do. Um, and it's annoying when people can't figure it out. And like, it's hard to like not burn bridges in certain ways. There's, there's a dynamic to this. That's very deep. And I, I'm curious. That's why I was wondering if you had a whole team that runs it, or if you just have one guy. I think the best way to approach this, sales and customer service, same thing, is looking futuristic, right? Like what is the customer going to run into that we can get ahead of, right? So typically in sales, people want to avoid the painful things. They don't want to handle it and they hope it doesn't come up. It's the wrong approach. It's going to come up. Let's bring it up in advance in a way that we can plan and get ahead of it and now I'm building trust. It's like, hey, you're going to get this bill in the mail in 30 days. Here's when to expect it, right? But people don't want to talk about the bill. Well, no, I'm telling them when to expect it, right? Because they're going to be thinking about it anyways. So you may as well prep them for everything that's going to happen in the process. I could not agree more. I think the management of expectations is the number one thing that can help drive more people to like you, right? Just for example, as an example, if like we know something negative, like you said, is going to come up, or how about this? We're busy. We're extremely busy. And we know we have back to back to back to back to back meetings. And you, all you have to do is tell this person, your customer, hey, I'm extremely busy right now. I will call you at 7 p.m. Or I will call you at 9 a.m. the next day. And then the follow-up and actually doing it, for me, on both the consumer and, and the business owner side, that has gone so much further than saying, I'll get to it when I get to it. And then people think you're forgetting about them. Even if you write it down, it doesn't matter because you're not communicating it effectively to the person that needs to hear it. And for me, that's the number one thing. Like, I, I, I If somebody says to me, hey, uh, I know we need, to, we need to meet on this. I can't meet with you for a week. Okay, maybe I'll be like, damn, that kind of sucks. But at least I know when to expect it to come up. Do you find that 
do you use that approach at all? Because for me, it's like it's a one. Yeah, and and also like one time is not enough. Like at point of sale, I'm telling, hey, you're gonna get a you're gonna get a statement in the mail, and you can set up an auto draft, or you can send in a check each month, right? You tell them how they can pay, right? That's not enough. Two weeks after the sale, they should get their statements. Now they're getting an auto email. Hey, I'm checking in to see if you got your statement in the mail. If not, let me know so I can make sure that you're able to get set up before the payment date. You don't have that. They don't get their statements in the mail. And now they're, they got a late fee and they're calling you in, in 45 days. I never got a statement. Like You can avoid all the problems in your business just by getting ahead of it. Yeah. And it's just putting a system into place. And I think people get into uh, like a spiral and that's where bad customer service comes in or the bad reviews come in. It's just, it's not setting expectations up front, not following up. And if they're, it's not having the organization of a system, right? Even if you have all the intentions to do it, we all know life hits and there's bang, bang, bang that comes up every single day. But having a system and having someone that's monitoring that system is so key for business. And that's what we found too. It's like, if we can't figure it out ourselves and we don't, we know we're not gonna have the time, we have to hire someone else and put them in the position because we don't want our reputation to be soured, essentially. Every, everybody's had this experience, right? The customers keep this, they keep doing this and you're annoyed, right? The big, the difference, the people who really excel in business is they take accountability and responsibility for how their customers feel, even when it's their fault, right? So I'm looking at, at like this, I'm seeing a pattern. Wow, this is like the fifth investor who said this. We need to change something and get ahead of that so they don't have that response. Right. Right. It's, not, it's not, oh, the customer's high maintenance. It's how can I get ahead of it so they don't become high maintenance. Love it. It's perfectly said. So I want to talk about Kearns Capital because when you do something for 15 years, it can maybe become your identity, right? And then if you change, I'm wondering, like you sell the company, what, was it like a reinvention? Like how did Kearns Capital come to be? And maybe just explain really what a hedge fund is because I'm not sure everyone knows. I think I know. And then I'm like, do I know? Well, <laughs> and maybe start real quick with this, the sale of the company because we skipped yeah, over that right. and then just yeah. weave into that. That'll be perfect segue. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we just, our margins exploded. We were able to cut off the, the marketing spend and, um, it, you know, triple, triple our sales because just everyone was in the market. So when a couple of private equity firms were reaching out, they wanted to buy the business. I mean, you just, sometimes you have to be not in love with what you do, right? Like you don't fall in love with your product. It, it will jade you, right? Like if I was so in love with Heartland Foods, the thing I'd been doing forever, my identity was completely attached to it, right? But it, it doesn't matter. Like this is business. When the opportunity is there, like we were never going to sell this company at that multiple. And I knew that like the, the people who were buying extreme amounts of food from us because they wanted five freezers full of food for Armageddon because the world was coming to an end because of COVID. I was like, when this doesn't happen and the world goes back to normal, our sales are going to get cut in half. We have to sell this company now. Mm -hmm. It was easy wow. to say, right? So yeah, we got- Was that harder for, was that harder for the rest of the family? Or like for your dad? Or did he understand that perspective that you brought? Just curious. Yeah. I mean, I think for him, um, it was, it was time as well. You know, he'd been grinding this thing out forever and, you know, it was, big chunk of money. And, you know, the plan was always, this is our family business. I'm handing it over to you. And I think, um, you know, my attitude probably took a lot of that pressure off of him because I just, you know, as much as I wanted to take over this business and it be my thing, I'm also not stupid. And I was like, you know, I, I know I'm competent in my skill sets. I know who I am. Whatever I do next is going to be bigger and better anyways. Like, let's make this good decision, sell this, let's have our liquidity event. I can put exit to private equity on my resume. You know, like, I mean, I'm looking at the positives in every situation. You know, COVID was a gift for us and couldn't be more thankful for that. And we, and we cashed out. So, yeah. Love it. That's a great story. 
Um, so maybe, yeah, the transition into to Kern's Capital and just, you know, how that came to be for you. Yeah. So the second we were made the decision, we're going to sell this thing. That was in, I'm going to say probably October, November ish of 22. So no, recently, no, 21, 21. 21. Okay. Yeah. So at that point I was like, well, shit, I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. Right. And other than the health and wellness passion, I mean, I always wanted to be an investor. I was already investing in private placement stuff, lots of real estate uh, as a passive partner. And I saw what that side of the investing world looked like compared to the derivatives that is sold to the public, right? So I knew I wanted to be in that space. I've always been extremely passionate. If I wasn't running my business, I was on CNBC. I was reading articles. I've read every money book there is, you know, and, um, yeah. So I, I went on a, uh, but I knew like, I knew that relational capital was how I was going to get involved in the space. I had no, I had no connections. I knew no one in the space and now I'm a hedge fund manager. How does that happen? I started spending a lot of money going to really high end masterminds and events so that I could meet people and figure out what's going on in the marketplace. What are the opportunities? Like, who can I meet? That's going to be my next business partner. I mean, people have the answers, right? Like you can save yourself decades of time just by networking with people who have already done the things you want to do. So I, I went to um, this event I heard about called a lifestyle bootcamp um, down in, in Miami. And this was in, this is to tell you how fast this happened. That was in March of last year. Okay. Wow. I was in the, I was in the audience. Cody Kearns didn't even know who I was. Right. I know. Yeah. We know him. Yeah. So, but this is a good lesson. Like you're going to go to the event buy the highest level ticket. Do you really think the speakers are talking to the people in the back or are they going to network with the VIPs, right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I bought the most expensive ticket. I'm out on, on the 100 foot yacht on, on the bonus day. It's only 15 of us and I'm networking with some big players and Cody and I start to develop a relationship. I The first thing I did was, you know, I made the decision. I was like, this, this is the guy. Like I, I want to work with this guy. He's going to be my next business partner. He doesn't know it yet, but that's, that's what's good. No, no. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing you do, first thing I did was I spent money with him. I hired his marketing company for, to do my social media just because like, I didn't even care what they were going to do. I just wanted to spend some money with them. Right. Sure. That's the, the closest way. Like people like you want to send me a DM and say, can I pick your brain? I'm like, um, but I'm not even going to answer. Right. It's like, that's not how you get close to people that are above you in the food chain. Like you got to know where you are. If you're trying to network with someone ahead of you, you're going to have to spend some money with like, that's just how it is. So anyways, I hired his marketing company and I'm also feeling him out. Like, does he deliver on what he says? Right? Like, is the product good? Everything was flawless. Right. And I was also showing him that I'm a good consumer, <laughs> like, you know, cause you can be a bad consumer. That's, that's a good way. If you spend some money with somebody, but you're high maintenance, they're not going to want to do business with you. Right. So I made it really easy for me to do business with him. And then I tell him about what I'm doing. He buys a food program from me. And then my other um, company that I had on the side addressing environmental toxins, he bought a whole house water system from me, right? Everything gets delivered on time. Everything gets installed on time. I follow up, make sure he's happy with everything. And then when he's launching this hedge fund, I was the first investor. I put money in before he even launched it. I'm showing him that I am in, right? I'm a player and I'm going to be part of this fund. The thing launches. I didn't say anything to him. I just went out. I started making calls and I was like telling everybody about Kearns Capital. And I, I sent him a couple investors in the first month. And he's he's just like, who is this guy? Right. <laughs> and he's like, hey, like, do you want to join me and raise capital? I never asked for a job. 
Wow. You bring value so, and they will bring you in. So we've learned recently, and we were talking about a mastermind for, oh my God, it was so long. Right, we at least we finally joined a mastermind. And I've talked to no people that have said this, that they're bad ideas. Zero. And and the only people that maybe that we haven't heard from that think that is because they don't, they're not leading with the value. They're trying to figure out what, how, what they can take, what they, but to put yourself in those rooms, there, there's a, a, a lot to be said for spending that dollar that you, maybe you think you shouldn't because you're like, well, if I'm going to spend, and I know high ticket. I mean, ours is not high ticket. We're not at that stage yet, but I'm saying like, if you spend 15, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 to be somewhere, you're my, you know, maybe you tighten up. You're like, ah, oh, shit, I got to get what's what it's worth for this. But for you to go in knowing what you've already known in business, knowing who you want to get in touch with, and then just the roundabout ways to bring this person value. I feel like that is a social media clip right there on how to, to try to attract the right people in the right way. You know, you know why no one does it though? Because people are, they have to be able to see the ROI in advance to spend the money. And you're, this is one of those faith things, right? Like I'm going to spend this five grand, this 10 grand, this 20 grand, and I have no idea if I'm going to get anything back. That being able to take that leap is the difference between everyone who you know their name and the people you don't. Like it's, that's it. Love it. That's a good line. Yeah, that's a great line. I like so explain exactly how hedge funds for people that are listening, like how they work and then what your day-to-day now is like in trying to raise money and and just maybe paint the picture for us. Yeah, so there, there's a ton of different type of hedge funds. They all do different things. I think the the prerequisite to talking about it is just the private placement space, right? So there's a lot of rules around this. The SEC, the reason why the average person doesn't even really like hedge funds are so mysterious, right? It's like you don't hear about it and it's kind of a protected class. And guess what? It is. And the government designed it that way. So you got 506B, 506C. So we're a 506C. So I'm going to focus on that. And what that means is that we we only raise capital from accredited investors. So if you want to know what a credit investor is, I'll just wrap it real quick. If you file your taxes single, you need to have $200,000 of gross income in the previous two years. If you're, if you're married, it needs to be 300,000 or you can have a million dollar net worth excluding your primary residence. So there goes 97, 98% of America right there that can't invest in your product. So the, these products are networked, right? We're not allowed to advertise. The SEC doesn't allow it. And, and you can go down whatever reasoning you want, but there's a lot of lobbying. The big institutions need America to think the 401k is the place to put your money. Right. So that after they make all the money, they can provide you a derivative. Right. It's the same difference of in real estate. If I do a private placement with a hedge fund or a syndication, I'm getting ownership of that company, which means I get all the bet the tax benefits. I get much higher returns because I'm closer to the investment. And what these firms do, the big ones, they're going to package up all this real estate into what's called a real estate investment trust. They're going to sell it on the public market. They're going to give you four percent after they made 40. So the question is, is do you want to be in a derivative or do you want to get closer to the source? A hedge fund gets you closer to the source where the real money is made. So, okay. Dumb guy over here. Hedge fund versus syndication. You kind of made them sound like they're one and the same. Are they? Uh, not exactly. I mean, a syndication is we're, we're going to basically create a fund. You can call it a hedge fund if you want, but you're creating a fund for one specific a piece of real estate. Usually that's what a syndication is, right? 
we identified a property. We need to raise capital for it. We're going to syndicate this property. Yeah, that, and I'm, we're familiar with that. And what's the difference between a hedge fund? Hedge fund. Well, a hedge fund like us, we don't do real estate. So, you know, we we raise capital from the same way in real estate. You got GPs and LPs. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing in our hedge fund. It's just we're investing in in different products, right? So we we raise capital from accredited investors, and then we our our first fund is a trading fund. So we use AI algorithms and swing trading strategies from different trading desks and partnerships to create a, a two to four percent monthly return net to the investors. That that's our target while while limiting the downside. So um, you know, it, and this is like. If you look at the S&P 500, people are like, oh, but, you know, I can get 10%, 12%, whatever. That's that's fine. But you're going to have big months, but then you're going to have negative drawdown months. A hedge fund protects you from those massive drawdowns so that even if you're getting a 2 to 4%, take that compounded over time, you end up with a much higher return than if you're in an index fund. So love that. Thanks for the explanation. So uh, um, my question to you is, how are you guys, well, you already mentioned with, with the AI technology, but how are you guys finding the businesses or the things to invest in? Or is, are they not businesses? Is it specifically like, wow, I sound dumb asking that question, but. Well, each one's different, right? So some hedge funds will have proprietary um, trading strategies, right? And, or proprietary pieces of real estate that they own. Other funds are fund to fund models, Right. So think of us more like that. So for instance, our our private equity fund launches on June 1st in two days, right? And we already identified our first play. It was built off a relationship with the managing director at Forte Capital Group that Cody got for us. Like that's a huge relationship. That's a, They've got $17 billion under management, right? So we we have no business having a seat at this table based off the size of our fund. But in this space, it's all about relationships. Right. So the Forte Capital, their innovation X funds over a billion, like they have several different, you know, parts of the firm that do different things. But the private equity specifically, I mean, they had late round IPOs on names like Stripe, Uber, um, Airbnb. I mean, who wouldn't want a a free IPO 20 percent discount on shares of Airbnb before they go public? Yeah, so that's that's what our our investors are going to have access to. So let's talk about the the relationship building aspect of it, right? Because you guys only go after accredited investors. So, and then there has to be, um, I believe there's X amount of like touch points, right? Before someone can like invest their cash with you, or there's a form they have to fill out, right? To prove they're an accredited investor. Can you talk about like how you're sourcing these people and like building that relationship and then what steps they have to go through before they actually press go? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we get on as many stages as possible, like what we're doing right now, you know, being on your podcast, um, I'll tell you a story of how this cascades, right? So I went to, during the pandemic, I had a, I did a little mastermind on Zoom and I'd bring on different guest speakers every week and I would just let people come on the Zoom and watch and ask questions at the end. And one of the guys I brought on um, was Chris Root, big real estate investor. I don't know if you know him, uh, but if not- I don't think I've heard. No, I actually yeah. don't think we do. Chris Root, great guy. He's got a, a mastermind called Allies. Um, they've got one in uh, Colorado happening in June coming up here. Okay. Uh, but so anyways, he comes on my virtual mastermind. Great guy. He says, Hey, I got a mastermind. Um, let me know if you want to come five grand. I was like, uh, I don't know, like do it. Right. So I spend <laughs> five grand to go, go to his mastermind. And this is right when we started the hedge fund. Right. And one of the speakers in there was a guy named Chris Noggle. I don't know if you know him, but another guy we're missing out on these big names. I yeah. feel that I'm like, dude, how do we not know these guys? Sorry. 
Because it's the, I mean, these are like big names under the radar, right? Like people that aren't big names per se, but are doing really big things. Got it. Got it. Yep. Yeah. So, and uh, Noggle, like we we build a relationship, same with Rude. And Noggle brings me on his YouTube show and we raised $2 million just from one episode of YouTube, right? So here I am, I'm like, do I want to spend the five grand? Well, guess what? If I didn't spend the five grand on a real estate mastermind with Chris Root, I wouldn't have met Chris Noggle, who's an infinite banker. Yeah. Wow. See how this cascades? Now totally. Chris Noggle has me speaking at his events. He spoke at our boot camp last weekend. Like this is how the networking works. You can all get out there and help each other. Yeah, I love that. So when you go to so you go to these events, right? Like you have you have your webinar. Is that how you build your touch points with these people that get interested? They maybe see on social media and they're like, hey. I'm, I'm an, say for us, saw you on social media, we're accredited investors. How do we get involved with what, is there like three more stages we have to go through or is it just like, Hey, what yeah. do you have going on? Okay. Yeah. The process number one is the conversation. Are you accredited? Can you even qualify to invest with us? If the answer is yes. The next step is the PPM, which is the private placement memorandum. That's the subscription document for any hedge fund type investment, right? So Uh, The name that goes on the PPM has to be the source of where you're investing, right? So we can take capital from um, retirement accounts, self-directed IRAs, trusts, entities, or just personal cash, right? There's a lot of vehicles people can invest from. So we have to know that first, that name goes on the PPM and then then how much they want to invest, right? And then that comes over to you in a DocuSign. You got to, you know, fill out the hundred pages of compliance, the whole thing. And then the next step, which is unique to our fund, is third-party verification. So this is something, if you get one thing out of this podcast today, this is what I want you to get. When you are looking at private placement products, specifically hedge funds, real estate's a little different, but hedge funds that take money and, and trade it or any of this funny stuff you hear about, like FTX going down, um, Bernie Madoff, all of these Ponzi schemes, mm. one common denominator. They all did internal reporting, right? Meaning something went wrong or someone was stealing money and they were falsifying the reports to the investors and they didn't know. So that's the first question I ask whenever I'm doing due diligence on a fund, who does your third party reporting? And then I go talk to them. Got it. Right. So, so we put the Boulder group in place from day one, which is our third party administration. When you come into the fund, they do the PPMs, they do the identity verification, they take the wires, right? So this whole trail, like we never even touch your money. We're separating the fund managers from the money to keep the investors very safe. And this is just such an important thing because when you're dealing with millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, it's easy for like a fund manager like FTX guy to be like, eh, well, I'll send a little over here and like, whatever, I'll just put it back. And, you know, none of that stuff could happen with our fund because it's being third party managed. I love that. So do you see this common in real estate um, syndications or is this not, is it more so geared towards hedge funds? More so hedge funds. Okay. I think that's a good thing to weave into the real estate side because then it just takes, not all the risk, but it takes some of the risk out of it. So that's cool. I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. Um, I feel like I just got a masterclass in hedge funds because we we haven't talked to anybody that's done them. I'm curious on like, is uh, where in the syndications that we're involved in, we typically take, you know, at we try to take a hundred grand shares. Where you can take fifty, as little as fifty. But I feel like I'm playing in a different sphere in the hedge fund business. Is that is a hundred grand like enough to jump into a hedge fund, or do you is that 
uh, yeah. less than the minimum investment, I guess. Is what our, our minimum for fund one, uh, when we launched it was 50 K. Then when we got, I think around 25% subscribed, we, we moved it to a hundred thousand and, uh, that's where the minimum is right now. And we're about 65% subscribed in fund one, um, fund two, which is the private equity. This is a much higher, higher level investment. The, uh, the minimum is going to be 250,000. So it just depends on the product and, and the fund. I mean, there's, there's hedge funds that, that won't take you unless you have a hundred million. Wow. <laughs> One day. <laughs> you know, but like, but that's the concept of our fund, right? The, the fund that won't take anything less than a hundred million. Do you think they're getting 10% every year? No, no, no they're probably getting 110%. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why the minimums are so high. Right. So our concept is we're, we're grabbing money from the average accredited investor. And then going to these big funds, fund to fund, so that you can have access to a product that you will never, ever have a shot at getting access to. That's cool. Now I see it's like the, there's layers to the game. Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. And we, we were just talking about the whole 401k thing. And I have, you know, I, I've talked on our podcast before about people dipping into their 401k to invest in real estate. And and I I'm, I would never tell anybody what to do with their money. Do whatever you want with your money. But I, I found that like, if you can get a, you know, equity in a deal and you can get cash flow every month and you can get the tax benefits. Why are you waiting to get 8% in a 401k? And and the, the real challenge is fear and the fear and fear comes with not just not understanding. Right. So that's why I'm so glad we're talking to somebody like you, where you're talking about a whole different sphere of investing. Like people don't, I don't even know about, I mean, my net worth isn't as high that high yet. So I wouldn't know, but to have this interaction, learn more about all these private investments where the returns are so much significantly higher than what you would see on like an average uh, mutual fund or ETF or you know anything like that. It's just very eye-opening. Yeah. You want me to give you the game real quick on raising capital? Yes. I mean, please. On that? So I bet, you, I bet if you guys raise capital, I'm sure you've been through this. Someone's like, well, I'll, I'll get back to you when, when I have the cash. You know, like, oh, I'm not liquid right now. The amount of people that don't know they have dead equity somewhere it's all oh, yeah. right. So I'll, I'll go through first of like, all right, well, let's go through your list of assets. Do you own a home? How much equity is in it? Oh, you have $200,000 of equity. Oh, well I can uh, refer you to somebody. who will give you a HELOC. And even if it's six, 7%, whatever, that's going to cost you 1800 bucks a month. And then in our fund, um, I'll go make you X, right? I'm not going to say the number, but it's more than that. Right. Mm -hmm. So you got to show people how they can tap into their equity. If you really believe in the investment, like a 401k loan, very simple process, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the, just the, like I said, lack of understanding is, is interesting about just surrounding debt in general. Like the first opportunity that I had that we had to take uh, a HELOC on our primary residence, boom, we did because we're in syndications that are going to pay us significantly more than the 4%. I think now it's like seven or eight just because of the adjustable rate, but we're getting even more than that. And that's the whole point to this game. You refi, you pay it back, and then you have this spread where you can use it and go put it into other investments. So I love- Billionaire math right there. That's what billionaires do. They're like, if I could get a billion dollars of debt right now, I would do it in a second because I know how to go make 1.1 billion. And there's my hundred million. You know, it's like- it's yeah. true. It, it it only it's just the little margin that you need, but it takes obviously compounded over time or one big deal, right? Then you're great. Yeah. And and Grant, somebody like Grant Cardone talks about it all the time is like just almost like searching for the debt, right? You're looking for the debt so that you can go make X percent more. You can be in like you said, fifty million dollars with the debt. What's the difference if you if if you know you're able to make sixty million dollars on that, right? So um, 
very, very cool and kind of flips the script on on people that maybe a lot of people that are listening to our show are on their way towards that accredited investor status, right? And and obviously Justin's a great guy to know to tune into and refer back to this episode when you're ready. But um I'm certainly gonna look at that. Our thing is I I have a 401k, I get a match, it is what it is. I'm just kind of putting it off to the side. But every dollar that's not being spent on our living costs is being reinvested. So hopefully at a certain point you're at just this compounding effect where you're making significantly more money than you're spending and it, well, it's, it's helped it helped us reduce our taxable income. That's exactly like, we just gotta max it out because yeah. we want to pay less taxes. So. Yeah. Um this is well, great. You gotta, so you gotta decide what kind of investor you want to be, right? You know, like early on in the game before I understood, you know, billionaire math, I was loading up a 401k too. But you're setting yourself up for failure in the sense that, and again, this is not for everybody. Like it's 401k is great. It's better than not doing anything. But if you want to be a real investor, you're tying your your money up where you can't use it until you're in retirement. And for me, I want a functional retirement. I want to be able to grow my money, but I want a ton of cash flow so I can enjoy my life today. Right? So I cash that 401k out. I paid the penalty. I made back the penalty in two months in Kearns Capital. And now that thing cash flows 20 grand a month. If I had left it sitting in the 401k, I wouldn't use it till I was 60 and I wouldn't and it have wouldn't the free house I'm sitting in right now. Yeah. And it wouldn't be 20, 20,000. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe, that, I don't know. We'll see where no, that's out of the future. Maybe, I don't know. But it's, that's, it takes a lot though. So um, before we get to the end of the episode, as we are winding down here, let's talk about, I know you're LP in a lot of deals, but you do have a massive real estate portfolio as, as an LP, I think like 1600 plus units. Can you talk about that and just like at what point you decided to deploy cash, how you vetted out the the different um, GPs that you went with and kind of just, you know, from, from a high level for other people that are interested in getting into syndications? Yeah, it was all networked, right? So I knew I wanted to get in real estate. Like I read all of Grant's books, um, didn't do any Grant's deals um, for, you know, when you're that famous, you just don't have to give anybody a decent return. So uh, <laughs> Got it. it just is what it is. Nothing but respect for Grant, but you're not getting any money. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, so I was just networking locally for like smaller syndicators. Um, the biggest thing for me when choosing an investment in in multifamily real estate is the return of capital timeline. It's not the return itself. It's how fast do I get my money back, right? So I'm looking at value add or development because I want to get a refinance event at year two, three, or four, get all my money out of the deal. And then the equity stays, the cash flow continues. And now I have an infinite return and I can go rinse and repeat and get another deal. That's, that's like, people want to talk about compounding of money. Like that's compounding of time. Absolutely. Um, so finding these deals and the gentleman or, or the woman that you go into deal into, I know you mentioned their relationship based, but is this just through your masterminds and like, how are you, how's it trickling down to you essentially? Um, so w- what I actually did to meet a ton of real estate syndicators, I did DM outreach. I hired VAs to send like 40 DMs a day to real estate syndicators. And I probably got on Zoom meetings with hundreds of syndicators to feel it out. You know, I'm, it's not my space. I'm not an expert in it. So and then, you know, I, I came across um, REM Capital. They've done over a billion and they survived 2008 very well. So I feel comfortable getting in bed with them before what could be a real estate crash coming up here. You know, yeah. um, you want to be with operators that can ride it out, that have experience, that are disciplined when they buy the deal. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's what you got to look for. And then the way that I diversify it is I don't want too much capital with one specific syndicator. I don't want too much capital in one area of the country. 
right? So, you know, yeah. two in Texas, one in Atlanta, six in Ohio, and some in Illinois. And and then if somebody brings me a deal right now in, in the Midwest, I'm not going to do it because I got too much there, right? So now I'm looking at like, okay, maybe I need one in Florida, maybe, and not with that syndicator. So there, there's, you just don't want to ever put everything in one place. I love that. And the diversification, even if you're in one industry or one niche, the diversification, you can do it throughout different states. So I love that. I'm curious. I think this was before we started um, the show uh, recording, but you mentioned that you're, you're not investing in any more real estate right now. And I'm curious as to why that is, what you're seeing. And I'm wondering if it's focused specifically on what you think is going to happen to multifamily and commercial, or you think real estate as a, as a whole. And I'm just curious. So the, the primary reason that I invest in multifamily real estate is for the depreciation, for the the tax benefits. I mean, the returns are better than stocks, but it's not, it's still not sexy, right? So I'm doing it strictly for tax mitigation of my other passive income, right? So I made enough real estate investments that I had, I don't know, two, three hundred thousand dollars of carryover losses um, that I couldn't even use in the calendar year. So I'm always making sure I have more losses in that LP category, um, passive, so that I can take all my passive gains out of Kearns Capital and not pay a dollar in taxes. So I'm I'm building these two buckets together, right? Like just making sure that, because if you get a monster return, but you have to give half of it to the government, like you didn't get a monster return. So it's it's a balance of like, sure, the real estate might only be averaging out to 10, 12% cash on cash, but if it's saving me 50 to 60% of my gains over here, that's so you're doing it as like an armory to play defense almost. That's kind of what you're doing as opposed, I mean, you're, you're, you're scoring, right? You're getting, you're, you're getting goals, but the whole point is that to protect the, the assets you already have, but also protect the income that you're bringing in. Right. Yeah. And, and it's also having a balance of short-term, medium-term and long-term money, right? Like the short-term money is like your business making it today. Uh, the mediums like Kearns Capital, that'll pay you out every quarter. Right. But I need long term stable assets as well, which is my real estate. Right. Because I know once the money goes in there, like right now, I've got two deals that I was supposed to get a refi on that haven't happened because of rates. Right. So that money might be tied up for five, 10 years. And that's cool. It's going to cash flow. Eventually, I'll get my liquidity event. But it doesn't hurt me because I got all this fast money over here in the hedge fund. So you need to think about like how you allocate your investments in terms of slow money and fast money. So real quick on the hedge fund is because we're we're familiar with real estate, right? It's basically like, oh, maybe like between year two and seven, they'll do the refi and then maybe they'll sell at seven to 10 or whatever it is. But for the hedge fund, are you guys paying cash flow at the gate? Let's just take a hypothetical, right? Like for one of your, the recent AI thing you were talking about, is that immediately? And like, like say you put in a hundred grand, are you seeing that two to 4% month one? And then is there, is there a liquidity event at all? It's up to you. So that's the beautiful thing about a, a hedge fund like ours is that every investor has the opportunity to take a distribution every quarter if they want to, or they can let it compound. Like we have some in, some partners that put in their money day one and have never taken a dollar out, right? Um, personally, I like to take a distribution every quarter because I live off of the funds, right? Like that's what pays for everything in my life. So um, you, it's, it's a product that you can get what you want out of it. That's what's so beautiful about it. It could be your growth engine, it could be your cash flow engine, or it could be a little of both. So what's the the elephant in the room question is like, hey, for what's the risk? And I think the risk is in real estate, right? The market changes everything. I don't know specifically how the market and the world economy impacts your, the hedge fund that specifically you have going on. Yeah. So, I mean, in any any private placement investment or any investment in general, you can lose your money, right? Like that's just 
a risk we all take whenever we invest in anything. Um, parameters that we have in place, our algorithm has a 1.3% max drawdown. So that's that's the risk you're looking at on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we've never hit the max drawdown. Um, just hasn't happened. You know, we've had you know days where we lose money, but it's a tenth of a percent. Um, our our worst month on record was a 3.5% net return to the investor. Worst wow. month, right? Nice. So you know, what's the risks? I mean, there's regulatory risk. You know, um, that could say, hey, like this high frequency thing, you guys are making too much money. The government never likes that. So you know, there's just there's ancillary risks, but when you look at different categories of risk, like we're in cash every day, right? In that algo, the money goes in for a couple hours at the most every morning, it trades and it gets out. So we're not exposed to geopolitical events overnight. We're not um, subject to these massive market fluctuations because we're, we're in a very niche strategy of we're taking currency pairings and our algorithms looking at all the order books around the world and it can process the data faster than the brokerages can and make a high frequency trade because it knows which way the currencies are going to lean. And then if, if, if a trade goes against the algo, it knows how to abandon it quickly. When it goes with it, it knows how to ride it and take a big profit. So you, you add it all up, you know, we, we've been averaging uh, 5% a month since inception, but, um, that's, that's not an expectation we want to set. We've got a, a ton of volatility in the currency space right now between the petrodollar and all this stuff, that's great for our strategy. We need volume. So we've been killing it. But uh, I would just say for any potential investor coming in, like there's no guarantees. This is private placement. You could lose all your money. But um, the expectation is 2 to 4% a month. Cool. Awesome. Um, so we're going to wind down the show here. But before the last question I have before we do is you have so much going on. I can tell your mind's working a mile a minute. How do you prioritize your day and your time? Uh, is there a certain... You know, I'm not necessarily suggesting there's like a morning routine. You know, so people, a lot of people talk about that, but is there like, do you have a regiment that you follow that organizes your time and organizes the strategy that you go about your day? I, I used to be re really like that. Um, and, and I think until you build the habits, you do need to have some routine, right? Like I would get up at the, you know, beat the sun up, number one win of the day, and then a journal, gratitude journal, and write my goals. And, be perfectly honest with you, I stopped doing all of that six months ago. I stopped listening to podcasts. I stopped listening or reading books. Like I used to be so obsessed with personal development. And what I realized was you have to do that stuff in the beginning. But once it clicks and you you got your runway, you need to quit all that and just execute. You don't need a morning routine. You need to get up and get the job done. Right? Got it. Yeah, I think that no, that I is... I don't like I I literally I start I'm on the I'm on, I'm in Vegas right, but I work the East Coast schedule. So my my first Zoom meeting is 6 a.m. every morning, right? I get up, I get coffee around 5:30, I head up to the Zoom station, I handle what needs to be handled, and there's usually a break. Like I'm gonna go to the gym every day, like not at the same time when it fits in the schedule. So now I'm just going with the flow. I'm just executing, 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 and it all happens when it happens. Love it. So for me, I think that's really important because I, I don't have like this whole morning routine thing, but it's like w one prerequisite. I'm, I, I don't go to the gym every day, but it's like my, I know how many days I'm going every week done. Like it's without, I don't have to decide it's happening. Right. So that, and then also I've learned that if I, the earlier I get up, the faster I get to work. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't really need to like 
prepare for the day. It's like, I just, I get to work and then maybe by nine, I'm like taking a break already or I'm shifting into a different business. So I, I think that's very interesting because a lot of people will say like 15 minute increments of this and that. But I realize when you get to a place that you're at, it's uh, it's probably not needed as much. So very, very cool. And you cool can answer. systematize you your life. If you have a discipline issue, then yeah. Like I would say do 75 hard. Like yeah, if, we've done it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't get through 75 hard, you have a discipline issue. So like my challenge to everyone is do it once, right? You got to prove to yourself that you can do that. And if you can, you don't have a discipline issue and you don't need to like do all this routine stuff because you're just going to get up and get it done. Mm, I like that. We have a, our, he's done it uh, Four other, well, one of our other business partners and his whole company has done it. And I'm the only loser that has not yet. So <laughs> I will be doing it. It's, it's funny you say this, Justin, I have a tattoo on my body that says, keep your promises. And it came from Ed Milet who was talking about self-confidence, but it kind of plays in this. He's like, you know, self-confidence comes from the promises that you keep to yourself because if you can trust yourself, then you don't really care about what other people think about you. So that's that discipline, that's setting that discipline and that expectation for yourself. Because if you can trust your yourself, nothing else really matters. So I I love it so much that I was like, I, I need to remind myself of this all the time. So very, very cool. It's um, huge. It's yeah, huge. Also on the other side of it, right? Because then you don't feel guilty about giving yourself grace and time off. Like I, I don't have to have this feeling of like, oh, I should be working. If I decide to take the whole month of June off, which I might, I'm thinking about it. Got to decide pretty quick, man. Hopefully you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Got a day. Yeah, at least the first week. I mean, I'm sure I'll still, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to take time off, but I'm trying to get better at that. Yeah. So yeah, he. I'm to... pretty bad at it. it. Sucks, but um, it's a good thing. And no, I actually really like that too because we, I, I could tell we're all a players here. This like the internal motor, right? You just it, you go and you go and you go, and then sometimes you're like, dude, holy shit! Like I need to slow down. Like your body starts. It's like, what are you telling you? For? It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Like, what's the whole point? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I I assume that you love what you do, or you wouldn't, or, or, or love ninety eight percent of it, or you wouldn't do it to that level. And I think about that sometimes too. And I saw Alex Hermosi talk about it. Like, if he loves the work, then why does he need to take a break? For me, it's like, if I can just know the amount of time that I need to work, and then literally, I saw somebody that was talking about scheduling their breaks, like scheduling this time where you're like, writing it in your calendar, like, I'm not going to work. It makes it a little bit easier. But we all probably enjoy what we do to to an extent that it's like, oh, well, what, is the, what is the break, you know? <laughs> I got to tell you a quick story. So... Two, two weekends ago, I was in an event in Dallas and Julius Jones was there and we ended up hanging out for a little bit. And he said that he didn't like football. Like he actually disliked football. He loved basketball. He, but he clearly had a running back body, right? Dallas Cowboys, one of the greatest running backs. And he said, sometimes you have to do something you hate so that you can do what you want to do later. And that was me in the food business. I didn't want to do it. It was necessary so that I could get myself out of obscurity and on the map to go do what I love to do. Now I'm doing what I love to do. So in the beginning, like do what's going to get you out of obscurity, not what you love, your passion. That's later. Got it. I, I, I think that's the right way to do it. Well, it's no right or wrong, but I think that's a very good way to approach it is like, is, is to create that that building block system for you to go get back to your passion as opposed to trying to drive your passion into create because everyone knows you have to make money like at some at some stage you got to figure out how to make money now do you want to struggle for 17 years before you're doing it or do you want to figure out the best way for you to make money turn it into passive and then go find out what you love to do and it's probably going to be a combination of both or you wouldn't have been able to build it to that level so 
I love that. And we're gonna go right to the last drop. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but unless you wanted to do... No, we're, we're good. good. Okay, good. cool. So knowing what you know now, Justin, um, I don't know how old you are, but I, I know you're not 18 anymore. So if you if you were talking to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give him and why? Man, um, well, I would have said buy Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> we all would have done that if we could have, right? Yeah. Early. But um, I would say pick a vehicle from the beginning that's going to make a lot of money. And, 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 you know, it's, it's impossible to do this, but like realize that there's like, you know, the flea on the jar thing, like they'll never go above where that lid is. Like whatever. Yeah, or like the, the, uh, I've heard like the fish is the goldfish. The never goldfish never, never, yeah, or something it, like that. it can only grow to the size of its environment, that type of thing. Exactly. So like yeah. I was, yeah, I'm 36, right? So I mean, making a hundred grand, when I was 22 was like the ultimate goal. I wish somebody would have told me I was thinking too small. Like, why not 250? Why not a million? Like there's 19 year olds that are making millions of dollars today. Somebody didn't shrink them into a hundred grand's a lot of money. So I think your perspective on what's possible is the most important thing, right? Like, I, like when someone's like, oh, what should I do? Like I'm selling uh, phones at the Verizon store. I'm making 50 grand. I'm like, go to a solar company. You're going to do the exact same thing. It's higher ticket. And now you can make 500,000. Like, why do you think you're only worth 50 grand? Yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of people, well, it comes down to a school and like, hey, okay, if you if you do have this major, you're going to make a job and this is going to be your base salary or your average salary, right? Then also goes to money talks back home growing up. Like everybody has people telling them how money works and they're not the expert 99% of the time. And that you kind of become a product of your environment. So there's a lot there. I really like that because for me, that was exactly the same thing. I was like, dude, once I make a hundred grand, I made it. And then you're like, you get there and you're like, dude, like <laughs> you need at least no 250 else. to do anything cool uh, that you want to do. You need at least 250. And then, so, and then it, it's like, dude, half mil or, or bust. And then it's like seven mil. It just, the, the mountain always keeps going or whatever is at the peaks. There's no, they're ever, never ending, but um, that's a good thing. To go on that though, Justin, I'm curious, do you have a... I don't know how to word this correctly. Do you have a place where you are, complacent's a bad word. I'm trying to figure out, is there a place where you feel like I can take my foot off the gas and I don't need to, maybe you don't stress because you already made it, but like, is there a place where you feel like, or is the mountain just going to keep moving and moving and moving and getting bigger and bigger? Or do you not look at life that way at all? I'm curious. Um, I mean, I had a, a recent experience that completely changed everything for me. So this is going to get heavy, but... Um, yeah, no, like I've always been like chase, chase, chase. Like it's never enough. Like I wake up every day, like I have to hit the next level or I failed, right? I've been that way forever. And and to your point, like at some point, like that's not a way to live, right? Yeah, um, I, I totally agree. Like it's like, what are you doing it all for? If you just, if you just, your goal ends up being bigger the, and bigger. It's the game, it's, right? a, it's yeah. a never ending game. Yeah. Yeah, so literally a month ago, I get a phone call. I'm the oldest of five kids, right? 28 year old brother calls me. I have cancer. Leukemia, right? He's 28. He's a police officer, single income, two little kids. Police department doesn't pay you when you go into the hospital for chemo, right? Wow. 
So because you're hourly, you're literally on the job. You have to be on the job, is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, and if you ask a room, like at these events, you ask the room, how many of you know someone who's gotten cancer? How many of you know someone that's died in a car accident? How many of you know someone that's had tragedy in their lives? What every hand goes up, right? Yeah. And if you're surviving off of one active income, you are one little thing away from losing your whole life, right? Not just like your life of living, but like your livelihood, right? And that's that's when it hit me really hard because this, my first reaction was like, he's going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical bills. He's not going to be able to pay his mortgage. He's not going to be able to feed his kids. Like these are like major problems. And guess what solves all of them? Money. Money. Right. And in that moment, I realized that I could solve all those problems for him. And I wouldn't even know it left my bank account. Now I know the chase is over. Right. Like I can still want to do more, go to the next level, you know, cause then the, the things shift. It's like, you're creating wealth and now it's like, okay, well, what, what world problems can I solve? You know, you're always going to have more, but the chase in a sense is over where like now, if I just today, I just want to hang out and enjoy life. Like I better do that because like, we just don't necessarily have some. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to know also that you you have to like know that you can enjoy life too, because sometimes that's, I think the hardest part is recognizing that it's like, sometimes I get all caught up in, in what I'm doing. And then I realize like, well, oh, but I'm so much farther ahead than I was last year. Like, can I just take a second to like realize that, you know, and then be grateful for it. So I, I wish the best for you. You ever get that feeling you're like, what do I even like anymore? Like I like getting up and like I would like I know it's it's shitty to say out loud, but like, but like I know for a fact sometimes you think about it, you're like, damn, like I mean I like working out, like I I like I don't know I like building businesses, I like create being creative, and I like having a passion, but what the fuck else do I like? No, I dude, I think about that all the time. Like you when when I go on vacation and then I'm thinking about the next big thing that I can do, I'm like what. That is that not backwards of shit to, to go on an awesome vacation and be thinking about the shit back home? Like, so I don't know anything. That, I mean, that wasn't rhetorical. Am I the only well, one? <laughs> look, look, it's it's phases, right? Like if, if you, like you got to be really honest with yourself on this. If you have not secured the bag for your family yet, like meaning like if I can't work tomorrow, are we good? Like if you're not there yet, like if you're surviving off your active income and it's going to be a problem if you lose it tomorrow, no, you need to be all in on the chase. Like there's... It is burn the ships until we get there, right? Yep. Like, you know, you should be obsessed. You should not go on vacation. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, like you just have to be real about that. And then once you get there, then it's okay to shift, right? But I just think like you gotta you gotta put in that initial work and and get to the place where your passive income sustains your lifestyle. Like, don't buy any luxury bullshit or you know, expensive cars if you haven't bought the assets yet. Like it's not impressive. Like I can tell every person that's faking, right? Like I didn't buy any luxury until I was a multimillionaire. Like not of not one piece, not one watch, nothing. I was focused on securing the bag for my family. And like, that's what you have to do in the beginning. It's only impressive if you have nice shit, if your passive income pays for it. Yep. I love it. <laughs> I, I, I tell myself that all the time. I was like, I, I'm about to, I'm paying off my car. I mean, you know, I have a, 10 year old car. It's a Lexus. It's fine. It works. I'm going to drive that thing into the ground. And I told myself until I become a millionaire, which God willing, it's not that far off for, for Ryan and I, which is for both of us, which is great. But I'm like, I'm not even going to think about anything until that happens. Right. 
and that now with inflation, like what is that? Right. So it's like, okay, exactly. Shit, I gotta like, I got it's gotta be two. It's gotta be four. Whatever. It'll that'll happen. I know it will because I know that we're in the right rooms. Uh, but it's um, I love the way that you phrase that. It's like it doesn't matter. And if it's like that, it really doesn't matter. And then by the time you really want that stuff, it probably will matter even less. So, or by the time, I'm sorry, by the time you can get it, it probably matters even less. So, and we talked about that because you had this goal to get a Lamborghini. It's like, dude, by the time you can oh, get it. You're not going to want it. <laughs> no, literally. You're still going to want it. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> when I get up to your, your style, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll love if it. If I can do it, I will. Awesome. Well, Justin, this has been a pleasure, man. It's just great to get to know you. Um, I, I had a blast talking to you. If people want to learn more about you, your story, maybe they're accredited investors, maybe they want to invest, maybe, they, maybe they're not yet, but they want to learn and eventually will. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I've got like the hardest last name to spell. It's Justin Freistadt. Um, all, Instagram's the best place to find me. Last name's F-R-E-I-S-H-T-A-T. My website is toptierhuman.com. Um, soon it'll be justinfreistadt.com. But uh, also Kearns.Capital, that's uh, the hedge fund website. And um, yeah, if, if you're interested, I mean, shoot me a DM. I'm happy to send you the slide deck. Um, you don't have to be accredited to get the slide deck. So, cool. um, you know, if you're on your way to it, it's just a lot of inspiration, right? Like we were all unaccredited at one point. So I think um, that's just the biggest thing that people need to do in the beginning is like don't invest in stocks, invest in yourself so that you can become accredited and get your income up so you can play with, you know, in the, the real private placement space. Cool. Well, Justin, thanks so much. It was an honor having you on the show. You taught us a lot. I, I truly felt like it was a masterclass as Corey mentioned. So thanks again, man. We, we value your time and it was a, an amazing time. So thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in this week to the weekly juice podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and share with friends. The more ratings we get, the more ears we'll get on our show, and in turn, we'll be able to provide you with more high-quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod, where we post daily tips and tricks and document our own journey towards financial freedom. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice.